Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. Very special edition of the analysis.news coming up. Noam Chomsky and Daniel Ellsberg. Be back in just a second. In my mind, two of the most important public intellectuals in the world, Noam Chomsky and Daniel Ellsberg, join me today. In 1971, Daniel Ellsberg risked a lifetime in jail when he leaked the classified Pentagon Papers to the news media, exposing the lies of the U.S. government about the Vietnam War. It has now come out as the possible source of the Times Pentagon document. It is that of Daniel Ellsberg, the top policy analyst for the Defense and State Department. Prepared to answer to all the consequences of these decisions. At the time of Ellsberg's prosecution, Noam Chomsky was asked to comment. Dan Ellsberg released to the American people information, historical information, about uh, how a series of presidents enmeshed them in a vicious and costly war of aggression. Now, 51 years later, Chomsky and Ellsberg, both in their 90s, are still tirelessly fighting to warn the people of the world about the existential dangers of nuclear war and climate change. They join me today on the analysis.news. Um, I asked both gentlemen if they might have a question for each other. And Noam has a question for Dan. So go ahead, Noam. Well, my question to Dan is one I've had in mind for a long time. How can you look so cheerful when you know so much about the horrible things that are going on in the world? Well, actually, it's almost a tick of mine. It's uh, a very long... When I'm in a situation, which I have been not infrequently, whether in Vietnam or in D.C. or around here, when the shit is really coming down, I laugh. I don't know. I can't explain it. And it's very... Uh, very puzzling to a lot of people. <laughs> How can you be laughing at this time? And the more horrible things are, uh, it's just a reaction that I have. So that's the uh, that's the answer to you. I it's not that I don't uh, smile at all when things are going all right, but uh, uh, when I'm looking this cheerful, it's kind of a barometer. <laughs> it's it's not entirely. It shouldn't be reassuring to people who know me. How about you? I know there's not a lot to be optimistic about, Noam, uh, but you don't stop fighting. You're doing, it seems to me, you're doing more interviews these days than, than even a year ago. It's like you're upping your game. What, what keeps you going, Noam? The situation becomes more serious, more dire, more urgent. There are lots of people, mostly young people, who are doing courageous, important work. I unfortunately just can't join them anymore. I'm not up to it physically. So the least I can do is try to do what I can, talk about it. You've been uh, doing wonderful work, uh, Noam. These interviews you do regularly with C.J. Polychronio, I learn a lot from them. I just read another one today on the, uh, the challenge that our empire sees from China, alleged rise of China. Extremely good interview, but they're all uh, they're all good, and I'm very impressed that you keep turning those out so so fast, just when they're needed. That's wonderful. 
So, so no, in terms of where we're at right now, um, there's a negotiations going on now for the uh, nuclear non-proliferation treaty in New York. Um, it looks like not much is going to come out of that, if if anything. In fact, there seems to be no real negotiations going on at all about any kind of uh, reduction in nuclear weapons. Uh, what, what's your Noam? What's your take on just how dire this moment is. You use the word dire, so explain dire. Well, I don't think there should be much need to elaborate on the dire situation. Uh, right now, in Ukraine, uh, a nuclear power plant is, has just been shut down today, but its situ situation is very dangerous. There's three or four others. Uh, they could easily be attacked by rockets, by terror. It could lead to a horrendous disaster. Uh, furthermore, it's all too easy to think of scenarios that would lead us up the escalation ladder. As Dan has made very clear long ago, we should all understand there's no stopping, no sensible stopping point. You step on the ladder, you keep going up to the doomsday clock. Uh, I don't think I even have to run through them. Actually, inadvertently, one was mentioned, incidentally, in the long Washington Post article a couple of days ago, uh, giving, discussing in detail the U.S. version of the background for the uh, Ukraine war. And in it, they happen to mention, incidentally, quoted a British military official who said the U.S. and Britain were kind of surprised at the Russian attack. They didn't attack using the U.S.-British methods, namely total war in which you destroy everything, destroy the communication system, the energy system, uh, shock and awe. How come the Russians aren't doing that? Well. We can ask, Kiev is functioning. Uh, we can ask why they're not doing it, but they certainly can. If the war goes on, they're very likely to. Uh, that could quickly lead to a lot of other things. Uh, fortunately, the Pentagon has been, uh, which seems to be the one peacekeeping force in the U.S. government at this point, has been vetoing some of the more extreme proposals like a no-fly zone, which means destroying Russian anti-aircraft facilities, which are in Russia. Uh, what happens then? Uh, uh, escalate uh, uh, more attacks on, I mean, there are actually proposals in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere, uh, even in peace journals, that we should be accompanying uh, ships Naval vessels should be accompanying ships that break the Russian blockade. Well, what does that mean? It means you, you get into a, an attack, then where do you go? I mean, it takes no imagination to think of how this could escalate. And the most important thing about that Washington, long Washington Post article, is there. It's all about how to, how to conduct the war nothing about how to end the war. 
which is, of course, the most important issue. Not a word, like not a word saying that uh, a couple of weeks before the war, uh, the Russian foreign minister Lavrov said the sole issue is uh, Ukraine joining NATO. Well, did he mean it? Only one way to find out. Take him up on it. Let's try and see if there's a possibility. Uh, actually, that's been what high US officials with any familiarity with the Soviet, Soviet Union have been saying for 30 years. It's just, it's too risky and provocative to expand NATO to the Russian border and certainly not to move to Ukraine, which uh, every high official you can think of, CIA director, Robert Gates, uh, hawkish defense secretary of Bush said, that's just gonna lead to war. No, no surprise, you know, keep doing it. Let's see, maybe we'll be lucky. I mean, take a look at official US policy, official policy. We have to fight the war in order to weaken Russia so severely that it will never be able to undertake aggression again. I mean, think for 30 seconds. What does that mean? It means we have to weaken Russia beyond what Germany was weakened, how Germany was weakened at the Versailles Treaty, because that wasn't enough to stop them from carrying out aggression. So what does it mean that we turn Russia into an agrarian society? something like the Morgenthau plan. Meanwhile, the Russians kind of stand by and say, yeah, this is kind of fun, let's, uh, let's see how far it goes. I mean, it's a lunatic world, lunatic. This, and now let's go to the NPT conference, probably get barely reported. Will anybody report the fact that the nuclear powers, including the United States, are violating it all the time. I mean, we all know what it says, Article 6. Nuclear powers will take good faith measures to uh, uh, end the scourge of nuclear weapons in the world. See anybody doing it? Actually, you, you circulated for us an article, interesting article with Guardian, which pointed out that the uh, arms control regime is is languishing it's not exactly correct the arms control regime has been virtually destroyed by the republican party first george w bush eliminating the apm treaty very serious serious threat to russia among other things then you get to trump who's wielding his wrecking ball attacking everything you can see uh, INF Treaty, Reagan-Gorbachev Treaty, which did lead to a reduction of serious tensions in Europe. Get rid of that, get rid of the Open Skies Treaty, goes back to Eisenhower. Uh, it's not just languishing. I mean, he came very close, Trump, to eliminating the last serious treaty, the New START Treaty. Fortunately, he, Biden, came into office uh, able to accept the Russian offers to continue it, 
by a couple of days. Uh, so it's not just languishing, it's being torn to shreds. Goes beyond uh, today, for example, the head of Mossad, Israeli Mossad, had a major talk in which he said, the Iran treaty is totally unacceptable. We're going to use whatever means we have to undermine it. Now, what does that mean? Uh, we talk about how Iran did not live up to the treaty, which happens to be true, after the United States eliminated it and totally disregarded it. Okay, after that, they began to do the same. Uh, is that an argument against renewing the treaty? In fact, I don't want to talk too long, but let me just go on one step. Everybody knows how to deal with the alleged threat of Iranian nuclear weapons. Impose a nuclear weapons free zone in the Middle East with inspections. Now we know that they work. U.S. intelligence confirmed that Iran was living up to the joint agreement, the JCPOA. So there's a simple solution. Why not institute it? Who's against it? Iran strongly in favor of it. Regional states been pressing forward for 25 years. The uh, whole global south is strongly in favor of it. Now, Europe isn't imposing any objections. One country is vetoing it, the United States. Do you see that in the headlines? Of course, Israel supposed. Well, we can go into why the United States is blocking it, but everybody knows, even though they don't say it would jeopardize US aid to Israel. Uh, if the United States doesn't even recognize that Israel has nuclear weapons, of course it has. If you recognize it, US law comes into play, which raises serious questions about whether any US aid to Israel is even legal under US law. Well, nobody wants to open that door. So we don't do what we can easily do to uh, end any alleged threat of Iran. Meanwhile, instead of that, we talk about Iranian violations, Iranian terror, one thing or another. Uh, there is an international treaty now, treaty for again, prohibition of production of nuclear weapons. Well, the nuclear states haven't signed, about a hundred others have. Uh, could we make a first step in saying, well, let's move towards thinking about signing in? Yeah, we could. That would be a step forward. Lots of possibilities. They're just not being discussed, just as negotiations to end the war in Iraq and Ukraine, only sensible policy, not even discussed. No effort to try, just war, war, violence. Let's see how far we can go and maybe by some miracle we won't destroy ourselves. Dan? Paul, I'm, I'm glad that you asked the question earlier, no asked the question. Why am I smiling through all this? I, I see that I am smiling. I can see it on the screen. Uh, I explained that when things look just impossible to get through, when it's things are terrible, when there's a shitstorm, a total shitstorm, I have this reflexive tick 
of laughing and smiling. Uh, and what we've just heard from Noam, I think, explains why that perhaps it's a hysterical reaction, why that's sitting in right now. Uh, Noam has described the situation very well. He mentioned, by the way, that uh, just an hour ago today, as we speak, the Japaritsia plant, uh, nuclear plant, the largest in Europe, has been disconnected from the European grid for the first time in its history because of fires that uh, the, the Russians say were set by Ukrainian artillery. Uh, with the Ukrainians, uh, whether they, they, they are or are not firing on Japaritsia, uh, not surprising since they're, if they were, given that they are human and they act like other uh, nation states have acted in, they're being fired on, uh, as I understand it, from Japaritsia. So both sides, in other words, are playing this nuclear chicken, in effect, um, of uh, gambling with the future of, in the case of Japaritsia, the whole region, enormously uh, subject to radioactivity, worse than Chernobyl or Three Mile Island. And, uh, uh, both sides, by the way, say, oh, yeah, we welcome inspection by the IAEA, but they're still negotiating on it, as far as I know. It hasn't happened yet to get people out of there. I signed a petition the other day, uh, uh, literally, uh, uh, to for the UN, for the NPT conference, to call on uh, all nuclear radio reactor sites to be uh, free zones, in effect, no uh, stationing of troops nearby, no firing nearby, no combat for three kilometers, they say, and so forth. Uh, yes, the NPT conference uh, could speak on that. But as I understand it, they're not proposing to address the Ukrainian situation at all, despite the nuclear threats that are being made directly in that. And they could even look forward to Taiwan uh, as an issue uh, when they're, uh, but they're not going to address these actual threats at all. Uh, I understand that the, speaking of the NPT conference that Noam did, uh, non-proliferation treaty review conference, uh, which ends tomorrow, I believe, for the first time in the review conferences, um, there has been a draft proposal uh, in line with what the UN Secretary Guterres has called for during this conference. And that is that the nuclear states commit themselves not to initiate nuclear war, a no first use commitment. And uh, this draft proposal uh, just about a week ago, which I read, actually incorporates that. And they, uh, some people were celebrating that as the first time that had happened. I didn't celebrate actually, because I think the chance that the final documents will incorporate that commitment or even call on the nuclear states never to initiate nuclear war, never first use, the chance of that being in the final document I see is zero. Now, in a way, nothing is zero. When I think things are certain, uh, they happen sometimes. Sometimes that's very fortunate. Uh, and mir miracles happen, like the Berlin Wall coming down or Nelson Mandela uh, coming to power without a violent revolution in South Africa. And so miracles happen, and that's what we need in effect is a miracle of that sort. But I don't think it's, we're gonna see it tomorrow. The usefulness of saying I'm certain they will not uh, commit themselves to no first use tomorrow uh, is that uh, if they do it, I'm clearly wrong. And that's useful 
I can then say my whole framework here is wrong. I've got to reconsider it. And actually, I, I welcome that when it happens and I, I learn from it. Uh, nevertheless, it's bad news uh, unless, unless it does happen. The reason I'm sure that it won't uh, is that uh, our foreign policy since NATO uh, began in uh, the late 40s, uh, say 47 it began, but in particular since its doctrine evolved in the early 50s, has been based on the threat or the assurance to our allies of initiating nuclear war against what was a nuclear state since 1949, uh, the Soviet Union. So from its very beginning, then NATO has been founded in US foreign policy beyond NATO has been foreign policy has been on our threat carried out by our preparations, our readiness, our deployment, our exercises, our de uh, development of weapons to initiate nuclear war against the nuclear weapon state, which even in the, in the smallest aspect, which could arise uh, any time now in Ukraine, uh, Putin is actually threatening that. If NATO becomes more directly involved, obviously NATO is involved, uh, but could be uh, could be more. Um, people have been pressing for U.S. air to be directly uh, in a no-fly zone, for example. Zelensky was calling for that early on, and uh, others. That would mean NATO direct combat with uh, with Russia, and Putin is, and which, by the way, could confront the Russians with a clear-cut military defeat locally in Ukraine. And if they're pushing them back even before the uh, February 24th uh, control zone that they had before this year. In that case, Putin has definitely uh, indicated that nuclear war is possible. He has more than a thousand tactical nuclear weapons, small nuclear weapons of the kind we've been uh, moving toward. Um, renewing uh, for some time. Yes, there could be even a small one then would be virtual extermination of Ukraine, of Ukrainians, but it would also be highly likely to escalate. And that means not extinction actually, but near extinction, uh, not even so near, let's remove that word. The latest report uh, on this uh, publicized, I think it was in Nature magazine, a peer-reviewed article by uh, Alan Roebuck, a number of others. For the first time, I think, gives a lower figure for what would come from nuclear winter, from a, a full large exchange between the US and, and Russia. Uh, we haven't seen, I don't think, uh, figures like that before. And the figure is more than 5 billion people, more than 5 billion people. Now, and that's, you could say good news, say it's 6 billion. Well, that leaves 2 billion people. Uh, Edward Teller would say, well, that's the glass uh, a quarter full, uh, 2 billion people left. But uh, it would be murder on a scale for simply we don't have any words, any concepts for it in language. And that's what we are budgeting, preparing for, and Russia also, and other countries modernizing their abilities to trigger this sort of thing, preparing it, exercising it, to kill, let's say, three quarters 
of the uh, human population on Earth uh, right now. Now, no one is saying really what gives any power, what gives the United States or Russia or ever has the right to make hostages of billions of people. Remember what this is more than 5 billion. I looked up the other day the number of armed forces in all the world right now. It's 1 billion and 100 million, actually, pretty much a billion. So three quarters or more of those people killed would be civilians, women, children, infants. Uh, yes, they would be left uh, people in a ravaged world um, as for the climate case. But uh, this murder of, as I say, uh, mostly civilians. No war now with nuclear weapons, even the smallest, will be contained within the territory victims will not be contained within the territory of the adversaries, aside from the fact that most of the adversarial people will be civilians, uh, in effect, but no such war will be contained within that territory. Most of the people, most of the people in a nuclear war will be outside the territorial boundaries of the um, uh, adversarial states. And uh, that includes with nuclear winter, the southern hemisphere, even without a single warhead landing down there. Uh, unlike radioactivity, which is pretty much confined by winds, equatorial winds, into the hemisphere where the warheads land, the smoke from the burning cities would be lofted into the high stratosphere, where it would not rain out and go around the globe very quickly within days and destroy, uh, separate out, that is, block most of the sunlight, perhaps 70% of the sunlight for years up to a decade, killing all harvests worldwide, all hemispheres everywhere. So that within months or a year or two at the most, nearly everyone would starve to death. I come back to the point, we have a, a non-proliferation treaty renewal conference now somewhat discussing and rejecting the idea that it should be a rule of international <laughs> human survival that no one should trigger it. And that really means no one should threaten it and prepare for it, which is what we're doing. People take some heart from the fact that uh, even uh, Trump, uh, I think under Trump, but at any rate under Biden certainly and Putin have renewed the commitment or the, the assertion that Reagan and Gorbachev made 40 years ago that nuclear war cannot be won and must not be fought. But since in the 40 years since they said that, of course, here we are building up for preparing for nuclear war and making it on a hair trigger on both sides, by the way, the ICBMs that are vulnerable to the others, ICBMs, are on a 10-minute alert on both sides and subject to false alarms which confront the leaders with using them or losing them within minutes. Only the ICBMs do that. And yet we have just, in this country, uh, budgeted for a whole new set of ICBMs projecting this series, the sequence into the future, which should have ended 
50 years ago, even from a Cold War point of view, when nuclear submarines came into both sides sufficient to cause nuclear war by themselves. And the ICBMs, the vulnerable ICBMs, which pose this 10-minute hair trigger, um, uh, were anachronistic and dangerous since that point, and yet we're budgeting them. So what are, there are two sort of big reasons why this situation persists. One is that, very simple, Northrop Grumman uh, makes a lot of profits right now from, from building these new ICBMs as Boeing did in the past. They, they lost out in the bidding on this one. So Northrop Grumman and Lockheed and jobs, even unions, political campaign donations, campaigns to the president, you'll make uh, money from preparing for a first strike uh, and for a preemptive attack, even though uh, people understand that actually to carry it out, to use these weapons would kill nearly everyone. That's one reason. The other reason is, is to come back to building those weapons makes it more plausible that we will, in the event of a small nuclear war, we will, we will go first, as we've promised to do and still promise to do, to NATO, and which backs up, by the way, our Biden's growing support for defending, quote, Taiwan, 100 miles off mainland China, where they have conventional superiority built up over the last 20 years. So that that threat, when he talks about when, when Pelosi goes to uh, Taiwan in what, what amounts to an official visit forbidden by the 1979 agreements with China, uh, is moving very much toward calling Taiwan sovereign, which has been described as a red line for over half a century by China. It's saying secession. Uh, they're no more ready to see secession of Taiwan, which they regard as part of China, than Lincoln was, for good or bad, uh, in the Civil War. And uh, they're prepared, and they say that's a vital issue for them. And they will go to war over just as Putin talks about uh, the use of nuclear weapons in an existential threat to Russia. Only he regards Ukraine as part of Russia. And he's about, it seems, in probably a month or so, to annex part of Ukraine in the Donbass. So what should we make of this fact that any threat, uh, the only thing that would call forth nuclear weapons is a threat to Russia? Yeah, Russia, same thing goes for Taiwan. We know that China and Chinese people regard and, and demand of their leader that Taiwan be regarded as part of China. So if we move as we are, as Biden is moving, it started under Trump, to recognize instead a secessionist Taiwan as independent, that would leave them free, as we put it, to have US bases and to have offensive weapons and to sell them offensive weapons, which you can be sure that Raytheon and Northrop Grumman and Boeing and General Dynamics are anxious to sell Taiwan in violation of the constraints we accepted in 1979. So I come back to the point, our, we don't have a full alliance with Taiwan yet, fortunately, so that's the direction we're moving in. We should be in a position to be able to say to Putin right now, the world, everyone in the world should be able to say to Putin, you're talking about the risk of a nuclear war over Ukraine, which 
we would not start in this case. It used to be that we were conventionally inferior to the Warsaw Pact, including the Soviet Union, and that was the rationale for threatening to blow up the world if they went into West Berlin or Germany. But that has shifted. The Warsaw Pact, except for Russia, shifted sides, and they're now all in NATO. So now uh, they have, uh, we have, if you want to put it, conventional superiority there, and it's Putin that is making the threats now. That's happening right now. So Putin is using his nuclear weapons the way we've used them for 70 years, the way you use a weapon when you point it at somebody's head, pistol, in a confrontation. You're using the weapon. You couldn't uh, make the threat. And if you get your way without pulling the trigger, that's why you have the weapon. Putin is saying now, NATO, don't come directly with your air power or troops into this conflict, or you're risking that I pull my trigger. Okay, so everybody should be willing to say in the world, you don't have any right to do that. That's outrageous. It's terrible. It's uh, risky. It's reckless in a way that the human language can't even uh, comprehend. But we can't say that, and we're not saying it, because that's our policy. It always has been. It needn't be in Europe anymore. We could easily say, we will not use nuclear weapons first in Europe. How about that? Or against Russia, or at all, as Guterres is rightly asking us to do. Biden isn't going to say that. Even though, by the way, he did say it in his campaign. He couldn't conceive of a circumstance in which it would be advantageous for the U.S. to initiate nuclear war. Fine, that was his position. Not as president any more than any of his predecessors since 1945. Because on the one hand, it would change our relation to Europe. We would no longer be the protector of Europe, uh, have it as a protectorate that gives us economic leverage and uh, uh, as if we were European participate in European arrangements. And second, he can't do it because he would be accused of inviting the Chinese into Taiwan by getting rid of a threat that is implicit in American foreign policy all the time. He's not going to do that. So uh, here we are in this situation that I would say uh, first led me into hysterical laughter at the beginning of this uh, discussion. Um, and really, uh, no, finally, the cheerfulness here, if any, uh, was also the, the prospect of having a discussion with you. That doesn't happen every day or every week at all, and uh, I really enjoy it. In fact, just the other day, I'll show you something. I'm sending stuff to my archive at UMass Amherst, and uh, sending it up, I came across in my files this, this paper, which I read, terrific paper by Noam Chomsky, U.S. involvement in Vietnam, uh, written just after uh, the war had ended, finally, in 1975. Do you remember it? You probably don't remember this paper, but I can recommend you. By the way, there's one problem with it. This version of it doesn't have the footnotes. So I'm working on uh, an academic friend to get me the full thing with the footnotes because they all look fuzzy. But of course, it reminded me uh, we had been in 75, you and I, uh, on the same side for eight years, since about 67, when I came back from Vietnam, uh, working together with the greatest respect. Uh, you'd been on the right side much longer than that, 
all your life, as far as I know. Uh, before those eight years, I had been participating as part of the wrong side. But anyway, we've been then for more than half a century working on this. Uh, I have learned, I have not learned more from any person on earth than from you, no, no one has contributed more. And I'll just go back to 67 when I read your, your book on the American Mandarins and whatnot, the sentence in it, which actually was just indirect, it said, the US acts as if it had a right to do these things, to be demolishing Vietnam and you know, threatening the world. And I, as somebody who'd worked for the government for more than a, a decade, thought to myself, a new idea, right? Right? I never heard it discussed. Never heard the thought raised. Do you have a right to do this or not a right to do that? And that was a very seminal thought, as far as I was concerned, helped help change my life. So thank you. Um, let me just add that the fact that Dan was right at the heart of it for many years has been of extraordinary value more than anyone else he's been able to bring to us an understanding of how things work on the inside, what the planning is like, what the thinking is like, how to understand what's happening now, because nothing much has changed. It's an invaluable contribution, quite apart from his 50 years of direct engagement, courageous, significant, engagement with all the material he's brought forth now on the background of nuclear planning, first on the background of the Vietnam War. And it's been an incomparable contribution to moving forward to try to achieve some measure of peace and justice in the world. I'd also like to mention another point that Dan's been making for about, I don't know how long, I've, heard it from him for many years. He's pointed out that nuclear weapons are used. It's not that they might be used, they are used. The analogy he gave was something like uh, maybe the three of us walking into a grocery store, say, I have a gun, and I tell the shopkeeper, open the cash register or I'll blow you away. Uh, he opens the cash register and gives the money away. I didn't shoot the gun, but I used it. And that's the way things have been working for decades. In fact, that's official US policy. There's a very important document confirming this, barely discussed, 1995, Clinton years. It's called Essentials of Post-Cold War Deterrence. STRATCOM, Strategic Command, asks, how do we deal, this is now the post-Cold War, how do we carry out what's called deterrence? Everybody's read war will. Deterrence means aggression or, or invasion or something like that. So how do we do it? Well, what they say straight out is nuclear weapons are always prominent in the background. They offer space in which we can carry out our regular uh, 
efforts in what's called defense, like overthrowing an overgovernment or a subversion or whatever it may be. Exactly Dan's point, Stratcom. Furthermore, they say that we must project a national persona, I'm virtually quoting now, a national persona of irrationality and vindictiveness. We must present a picture to the world of some elements being out of control. Can't, we'll never be able to stop them. They'll go crazy, Curtis LeMay, somebody else. And the world has to understand that about us. It's what's called the madman theory. It's attributed to Nixon on the basis of pretty thin evidence, diary, diary entries. But it's right in major documents, right in front of our eyes. Stratcom document 1995. We must project a national persona of irrationality and vindictiveness, some elements out of control. We must waive the nuclear threat constantly because it provides space for our regular activities. Dan's point, using nuclear weapons constantly. Well, that's worth thinking about, not keeping in the shadows. And sure, that remains today. Dan can tell us a lot more than I can. You remind me of that Stratcom document. Um, no, I'm very good. The notion of a madman theory has been associated with Nixon. When, in fact, he was ready to use nuclear weapons in 1969, his first, his first year in Indochina against, by the way, a non-nuclear weapon state, but one that had allies of nuclear weapon states, China and Russia. And uh, he didn't carry that out for one reason. In November, October of 1969, in October, there were two million people in the streets uh, all over the country on one day. It was called the, the moratorium. They avoided the word that they originally thought of, general strike because it sounded too radical and too uh, provocative. So they called it a moratorium, you know, a, a, a stopping of business as usual. And uh, people took off from college and from business and even uh, major, major businesses, financial institutions uh, on the same day in cities all over the country, 300 here, 10,000 there, and, they, and more than 10,000 in some of the cities. And they added them all up on the same day, and it came to two million. And um, Nixon, with, by the way, <laughs> counted in part by U-2s, you know, high-flying planes that we used over Russia, uh, to count the number of people in various big demonstrations. And it wasn't a good time for Nixon to carry out his explicit threats and plans, plans to initiate nuclear war at that time. Uh, Roger Moore saw nuclear target folders for hitting uh, North Vietnam near the Chinese border. It's in the Chinese lesson. So, so we found we got a moratorium on pulling the trigger for uh, 50 years there, worthwhile by people demonstrating in that case. But now many other cases have arisen since then. Notice that that threat come in 1995 was during the Clinton administration. Does that mean that Clinton wasn't mad enough to uh, make these threats credible? Well, that happened to be a year in which they weren't needed very much because the Soviet Union had just dissolved in the Warsaw Pact. 
and dissolve. And Clinton was starting the process, disastrous process of uh, getting Poland, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia into NATO, uh, you know, breaking, as you, I think you said, the clear-cut commitments that had been made to Gorbachev earlier, that NATO would not expand and means beyond Germany. And uh, Ukraine understood from that very time on by even people who had started the Cold War, I mean, been on the creation of the so-called uh, Kennan, was saying a disastrous uh, expansion and the, the effects it was uh, likely to have on the right wing in Russia to change politics in Russia and to uh, be regarded as in, impinging on vital interests of Russia for that time. Our policy ever since then, from Clinton and Reagan and all the others, uh, not, I'm sorry, Clinton and George W. Bush and later, and from, has been so directed toward carrying out Kennan's ominous warnings, which were echoed, by the way, by Jack Matlock, uh, the Republican, uh, put in by the Republicans as ambassador to Russia, real expert, who had been saying, don't do this. Uh, and many others, many academics for once on the, the right side were saying, don't do this. And yet we've moved into carrying out George W. Bush's pronouncement in 2008, Russia, I'm sorry, Ukraine and Georgia will be part of NATO. This was against the strong internal objections uh, of Germany and France and others uh, against this as a reckless act, but they didn't come out. They went along with this uh, under arm twisting by the US. It was 2008. Well, doing that ever since leads me to a very ominous inference that the US was certainly willing to risk what's happening now in Ukraine with all its attendant risks of escalation in the world. I'm inclined to think, or at least it's uh, equally possible, that they wanted it, that our establishment has wanted precisely this. Not more. They don't want a nuclear war, but they're willing to risk it and gamble with it. And what is happening right now is perfect. Better than, uh, let's say, uh, complaints by Russia or whatever. It has restored the supposed necessity of NATO with the US at its helm, with US nuclear threats on it. It has added to NATO, Sweden and Finland, who have properly kept out of it uh, since its inception. Now they're, now they're in, it's expanded NATO, exactly what Putin presumably did not want. But it is, it's a bonanza for the military industrial complex, specifically for the firms, and let me name them again, uh, Northrop Grumman, uh, Raytheon, General Dynamics, Boeing, Lockheed, uh, their stock has all gone up, and rightly so. If you have no scruples about where you invest your money, then those firms are a good bet from now on. And they have gone up, and they're going to stay there up because their their uh, sales prospects now have enormously increased. It, is that enough to be an element in what's happening? Yes, it is. The uh, as, as E.P. Thompson said, 
uh, long ago, before the breakup, when there was still the Soviet Union, he said, it's wrong to say that the U.S. and the Soviet Union have military industrial complexes. It is, it is more realistic to say they are military industrial complexes. And, you know, in the, in the strategic uh, role of these in research and development, so physicists and engineers and budgeting and everything else. So these two aspects of restoring NATO leadership and so-called Atlanticist bent instead of a European community from uh, Portugal to Vladivostok, which Gorbachev called for and which others uh, endorsed. That's not what the U.S. wanted. They needed Russia as an enemy. Otherwise, why do you need NATO at all? If Russia is as it was trying to be in the last years of Gorbachev, even under Yeltsin, uh, corrupt and weak as he was, trying to be a friend to the United States, and be a partner, they even talked about joining NATO, and that wouldn't make any sense. Uh, what would those weapons be for that you're selling them or that they're making themselves? If Russia is a friend, that doesn't make any sense. Why would U.S. be needed uh, to protect Europe from a friendly Russia? No, that was not, in other words, moving, as Kennan has said, to make Russia and see Russia and to make Russia an adversary in a room was essential to the U.S. And that's what we've got. When do we want that to end? No, you were, you were, I totally agree with the points we made earlier. This killing field in Ukraine right now must come to a stop. And how is that possible? Only with negotiations, which are showing no interest. And Putin isn't showing much interest. But we definitely, we're making, as you said, we're describing aims that can never be achieved. Weakening Russia so it can't attack its neighbors. Weakening Russia so it can't invade Georgia, when will that happen? Uh, never. So, or Moldova, so, or, or others. The, the whole goal is, you know, despicable to think of uh, continuing killing in order to, or, you know, whatever sanctions to weaken another country, especially dangerously under clear weapon state. So, or to, let's say, restore Crimea, now being attacked, but to restore Crimea to Ukraine, which uh, Khrushchev uh, gave it to Ukraine some time ago, kind of arbitrarily. When is that going to happen? Not very likely at all. When are Russian troops going to leave entirely the Donbass, where they've been for the last eight years? This is a recipe we're announcing for an indefinite war. And why not? It's good for the military industrial. It's good for the U.S. foreign policy establishment with uh, our current Secretary of State, Blinken, uh, and Austin and the others being in no way better than the foreign policy team of Trump or Obama or anybody else. So uh, the same goes back to uh, Taiwan. I keep coming back. No, you're the person who has connected things consistently for the last half century. Uh, and the and, and one thing that you're very unusual on, unfortunately, is to see two existential risks 
not just climate, which is an existential risk, but also nuclear, which a lot of environmentalists, unfortunately, uh, don't see. Uh, so you've been pressing on both these points. As I say, you've, you've really illuminated uh, my world uh, steadily with your global perspective on these things. Anyway, if we don't change our policy, which is also Russian policy uh, on both climate and nuclear weapons, then, you know, the, the world is headed, uh, again, what is the, the word catastrophe doesn't encompass it. And uh, uh, mass murder, multi-genocide, omnicide, near omnicide, none of these, we don't have words for it. So uh, thank you again for what you're doing. But the at least the discussion is possible. Uh, the notion of no first use has at least been discussed in the, and that's not enough in the non-proliferation treaty and uh, in NATO. But, uh, and, and as, I, as one of your recent articles pointed out, the idea of a Europe unified from uh, Portugal to Vladivostok doesn't look in the cards now, thanks to the fact that we have, and I'm sorry to say, I believe, successfully provoked aggression, crime, murder from Russia. Uh, but nevertheless, we have acted to increase the likelihood of that now for at least a quarter of a century, and we've got it. So voices like yours and others to change that policy and make it uh, not acceptable that we won't negotiate or, or the people we support, Ukraine, that our support is unconditional for an endless war. Uh, that has to change or we won't, uh, the forces <laughs> playing chicken have the world in their back seats. Okay, so Noam, you wanna do a final kind of response to what Daniel was saying? I'll try to be brief. Uh, Dan brought up something of extreme importance, the framework, the, the overall framework of global policy within which all of this is taking place uh, through just keeping the Europe uh, over the, uh, since the Cold War began, uh, there have been two possible visions of the direction in which Europe might go. One is what's called the Atlanticist vision, basically NATO, US runs it, US sets the rules. We have what's called a rule-based international order in which the United States sets the rules and Europe obeys. Europe doesn't like it, they obey anyway. So for example, Europe is strongly opposed to the US sanctions on Iran and to the withdrawal from the Iran Treaty, but they obey. Now that's the Atlanticist vision. There's another vision, the Gorbachev vision, which goes back to De Gaulle, uh, have a, Europe as an independent third force in international affairs, uh, independent of the United States, has a bigger economy than the United States, uh, intellectual resources, others, cultural resources, 
can be an independent force. Uh, in Gorbachev's version, common Euro European home from, as Dan said, from Portugal to Vladivostok. Uh, that's the other vision. Well, the US, US, of course, has always been in favor of the Atlantist vision, in which it calls the shots, which means a military alliance. The Gorbachev vision meant no military alliances, co-equals, no victor, no loser, co-equals. We work together on both sides. We transform our societies towards more effective social democracies. It's basically the Gorbachev vision. U.S. vision is Atlanticist, NATO, military alliance. We expand to the Russian borders in violation of people like Matlock, Kissinger, almost anybody who knew anything about Russian affairs. Well, Putin's war aggression was certainly provoked, but it was certainly not justified. No aggression ever is. So it's a criminal act like the U.S. invasion of Iraq, like the Hitler-Stalin invasion of Poland, criminalized, could have possibly been prevented by paying attention to Russia's crucial demand that you reiterated right before the invasion, that NATO, that Ukraine be neutralized, kind of like Austria, or like Mexico for that matter. Mexico can't join a hostile Chinese military alliance, country being blown away. You know. So yeah, neutral status could have been avoided. Well, Putin, by invading, there were opportunities that might have been pursued by Emmanuel Macron, French Prime Minister, Schultz in Germany. They just dismissed them flat out, no response. If he pursued them, Maybe something would have worked. The U.S., of course, opposed them, might have moved forward, might have actually moved towards an accommodation, which could lead to something like the common European home. Well, instead, he handed the United States on a silver platter exactly what it wants, subserving Europe, just following U.S. orders and demands. I don't know if that's going to last. Europe is the is going to suffer severely from this conflict, not the United States. Uh, the, as Dan pointed out, the military system is just uh, exulting, as are the, the fossil fuel industries. Couldn't be happier. Uh, but a germ, the German-based European system is suffering. They can't survive this way. In fact, they can't even move to renewable energy without Russian resources. There's a natural interaction between Russia and Europe, which is basically unbreakable. Uh, they furthermore can't have access to the vast China-based uh, Eurasian program by now reaching already into Europe. Uh, China's establishing the biggest uh, battery company in the world, in Europe, in Hungary, they're moving the thing Germany and the rest are going to have to deal with this somehow. I don't think this Atlantis system is going to be able to survive. That we'll see. But that's been the conflict. Well, what about China? There's supposed to be a China threat. There is. 
China doesn't follow orders. It's not like Europe. You tell Europe, we want you to observe sanctions that you hate. They say, okay, we hate them, but we'll observe them. China doesn't listen. They go their own way. That's intolerable. That's what in internal documents are called successful defiance of US policies. Can't allow that. That's why we, it's kind of interesting, as Dan pointed out correctly, these escalating tensions with Taiwan is sheer insanity. There is a policy, the one China policy, it's been in place for 50 years, has strategic ambiguity, it's been working. Why upset it? Why have huge naval operations rim back in the Pacific with dozens of countries participating, aiming at China? Why have, as Biden established, going beyond Trump, a row of what he calls sentinel states, heavily armed with uh, US precision weapons, uh, South Korea, Japan, uh, Taiwan, Australia. They try to get India in, but India isn't really participating, uh, all aimed at China to counter the China threat. It's not that China's a nice place, there are a lot of rotten things, but the threat is they don't obey orders. We're not going to accept that. Uh, that's an uh, old policy. This phrase, successful defiance, incidentally, is from 1960s policy about Cuba. State Department declared that the threat of Cuba is its successful defiance of US policy, going back, back to the Monroe Doctrine, which declared our right to control the hemisphere. No threats just can't accept that, can't accept it from a small island like Cuba, which we can torture and attack for 60 years, certainly can't accept it from China. So we'll face the, we'll have a strategic posture established by Trump, continued by Biden, of being ready to fight two wars simultaneously with China and Russia. I mean, as Dan pointed out, there's no there's no words in the language for this. Lunacy doesn't work. Catastrophe doesn't work. They have to invent something new. That's where we are. You know, if I may say just on that last point, I know which say very well. The what I was trying to say earlier was our policy has been nothing other than a madman policy from its beginning, and it remains that way. And to define it, when you say, is it lunatic? It's a threat of an unequivocally insane action, an evil action. It's a threat, it's a preparation, it's a risk. Unfortunately, it's not only the leaders, but a large part of the follower, a large part of the public, readily humans, accept the idea that uh, to threaten a massively unprecedentedly evil action is not necessarily evil in itself. We can use it instrumentally. To risk it uh, is not necessarily mad. And it has its successes. Actually, West Berlin, 200 kilometers inside East Germany, surrounded by Soviet 
divisions, which we couldn't penetrate at that time, was kept out of the Warsaw Pact, out of the Soviet Union, by our threat to blow the world up. It worked. I don't think any other way uh, could have kept Berlin in very successful. Uh, as you say, it was a, like a 7-Eleven on the very you know other extreme of the spectrum, where the cashier handed over the money. They got we got what we wanted from that, but at the risk of maintaining uh, this apparatus to blow up the world. So, trying to change public attitudes to recognize that there is insanity even to the risk and to the threat and the preparation, not just to carrying it out. Uh, you know, just this last week, what seems to be the major, now the major um, uh, rival to succeed Boris Johnson in England has uh, changed a little. It's now, I think, Liz Truss. And she was asked on a, on a program, Just I, I just saw it yesterday, on YouTube, uh, are you ready to press the button on Trident submarines and to initiate nuclear war? And uh, and and the, and the interviewer spelled it out. He said, "Which would lead to you know the destruction of humanity and civilization and so forth? Are you ready to do it?" Theresa May, when she was a woman uh, premier, had had to answer the same question uh, when she on her first meeting in Parliament, the first answer question. They both gave the same answer. Of course, uh, May, May said yes. Um, Liz Truss said the other day, yes, it's a principal duty of the prime minister. Uh, she just, she could have said more precisely to, to under some circumstances, you know, so, uh, she just said, it's a principal duty uh, to be ready to press that button, yes. I am ready to do it. And then the guy pressed her on it. Uh, he said, you know, if I were in that position, I would feel sick at that. I would be sick to my stomach at the thought of doing that. And uh, she said, I'm ready to do it. Now, A, what else could she say? She's, she's vying to be the prime minister of the British nuclear force and so forth. Could she, would she be a candidate? If she said, no, I couldn't do that under any circumstances. So politically, but people, uh, she more or less had to do it. But politically, um, people did point out that she did this very unemotionally. Uh, you know, matter of fact, yes, yes, I would fire Trident, which, as I said, would lead to nuclear winter, essentially, trigger to it. And so she's saying, you know, I would do this insane, lunatic, Action, which in other words, well, that should make her a candidate not for 10 Downing Street, but for a padded cell in which she would have a lot of company. It would not be isolation. There, there would be a large wing of the uh, institution for the criminally insane that would be populated by most of our leadership and her officials. But that's not the way it is. And the public so far accepts that there would be people who vote for for that in all in all, all the nuclear weapon states and uh, remember we've got a country here as Novi pointed out with a republican party that not only for years as you've been saying uh, is the most dangerous party in its absolute determination to stop any ceiling any restraint on the emission of co2 but now uh, 
denies that Biden is president, showing that there's just no limits to human denial. And that's something I've learned in my old age. It's taken a long time, but there it is. Uh, there are no limits, left or right, really. Any human is capable of doing this. Uh, I haven't actually seen you, know, uh, But I have to say, my generalization is very strange. I think any human, without exception, I haven't seen one. You may not have a demonstration of it, is capable of participating in group activities that do harm and denying them and turning their eyes from them. And that's a human characteristic we have to find a way to transcend. Thank you so much, Noam. Thank you so much, Dan. Uh, I don't think I can end with any form of laughter, hysterical or otherwise, but I'll try. We're going to pick this up in another segment we're going to do next week. So look forward. Everyone can look forward to that. Thanks again.